Well, it was April 1518, and a German order of Augustinian monks got together for their general chapter meeting in the city of Heidelberg, Germany. And in this particular meeting, they asked one of the young monks, one of the young friars, to come and defend some of his new theological positions. This young monk had several months later written some complaints against the Roman Catholic Church. And for, for in many ways, this order of monks were in agreement, particularly with uh, what they saw as excesses and sin within the Roman Catholic Church. However, there were some points of his theology that they were concerned about. So they invited him to this chapter meeting to come and and perhaps lighten up in some areas, perhaps step back, perhaps clarify, maybe even apologize for some of the points that he made, particularly pertaining to his understanding of sin and grace and assurance of salvation. Well, in the spring of 1518, the young Martin Luther, who was still relatively obscure at that point, comes and stands before this group of monks and clergy, and he takes to the podium. And instead of nuanced clarification, Luther opens with this statement, the law of God, the most beneficial doctrine of life, cannot advance man on their way to righteousness, but rather hinders him. You can imagine how that would go over uh, in a room full of monks. The law of God, the most beneficial doctrine of life, cannot advance man on their way to righteousness, but rather hinders him. Luther continues to make very bold claims and statements about the meaningless, meaninglessness of, of human merit to a group of monks who had given their lives to solitude and meditation and careful adherence to God's law, a law that according to Luther only hinders one and their pursuit of righteousness. What exactly is Luther getting at with this claim that sounds so counterintuitive? Well, I would argue that he's getting at what the Apostle Paul is getting at in our text in Philippians 3, that our own strengths and ability to act righteously do not move us towards God, but potentially move us away. So I'm going to consider this this morning. I hope we can consider it together. And I think it's a fitting claim for this series that we're in right now on Converse Christianity, that, that what seems to be the case is often not the case at all. In our first weeks, we looked at the first two chapters of 1 Corinthians, looking at how God's power actually does not look like power at all. In fact, it looks like foolishness. We found that in the kingdom of God, only the dead survive. If you'll recall last week, we considered the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector and this upside down reality that only sinners can be saints. Well, this week we will counter a counterintuitive teaching that if only sinners are saints, then our pious strengths are potentially deadly. 
And so we'll consider this this morning from this section in Philippians, and we'll do so under three headings. The first heading will be evildoers of righteousness. So in many ways, there's a danger to just jumping into the middle of an epistle like this. We, we don't understand the full context, what's going on. But uh, our junior and senior high students have been walking through Philippians for the last few months in Sunday school. They'd be happy to walk you through it if you want to chat with them after the service. But, but just to give a few highlights, many of Paul's claims and how he speaks in this book really are uh, in keeping with this understanding of counterintuitive Christianity, converse Christianity. Paul writes to a church that is clearly enduring suffering, difficulty because of the gospel. But Paul's spin on suffering is very interesting if you read through the letter. He says, I, I know you've heard about my imprison imprisonment, but Turns out that prison is great for gospel advancement. I don't know if imprisonment is on most of our pastoral qualification lists. It certainly doesn't make for our list on how to grow the church, but Paul says it's actually a great tactic for growing the church. He moves on to preachers that supposedly were, were preaching just to make him angry with all the wrong motives and his response to them is, you know, no big deal. Christ is being preached. It's, it's fine. Paul, Paul seems to celebrate his opposition. He will go on to exhort the Philippians in their own sufferings and far from calling them to wage war on their oppressors. He calls them to have the mind of Christ who sought victory by way of humility, exaltation by way of death. And in the midst of all this suffering, suffering that Paul doesn't indicate that will dissipate anytime soon, Paul calls the Philippians, he calls us to rejoice and be glad. I mean, as we make our way through this letter, there are many opportunities for Paul to malign his opponents, but he doesn't. The imperial guard who has prisoned him, they're hearing the gospel. The preachers who preach out of envy and rivalry, don't, don't worry about them. People are hearing Jesus. The people who are trying to kill me, you know, dying is gain as well. <laughs> no big deal. I mean, if you don't understand Paul's rich understanding of joy and satisfaction in Christ, we could, we could see him as one of these people who always has a positive take on everything. You know the type, right? You just want to complain for a few minutes and they always have some positive spin on things. They always go on, you know, quoting Philippians or something. Paul has almost a happy-go-lucky feel in this letter, if we read it on the surface at least. That is until he gets to chapter 3. And if we look at our text this morning, he, he, goes from not, he goes from refusing to call names, refusing to, align, to malign his opponents, to saying, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. 
Paul has had plenty of time for name calling, but it's not until now that he seems really fired up by whatever it is that these individuals within the church are trying to bring into this Philippian congregation. Dogs, this this title he uses, were seen as violent and unclean animals, according to the Jews. In fact, it's a term that they would often use for Gentiles that were outside of the kingdom of God because of their uncleanliness. And according to Paul, these dogs are workers of evil, mutilators of the flesh, he says. I mean, this really must be a wretched group of individuals if he has nothing bad to say about the people who are trying to kill them. But these guys, he's really upset about. Everyone else seems to get a pass, but for these individuals, they, they seem repugnant to Paul reprehensible. They seem to be beyond the pale of God's salvation. These are the people in which the church needs to be on guard. Well, well, who are they? And why is Paul so upset? Well, we get some clues as we continue in the passage, don't we? Paul gives us three positive statements about the church that he is writing to, And he includes himself in those statements. But if you look closely, each of these affirmations implies a reality concerning these so-called evildoers. Paul first says, we are the circumcision. Paul speaks this way elsewhere to speak of those who are the true believing Israel, the Israel of God, as he says in Galatians. Jews and Gentiles who have received a spiritual circumcision by faith. Romans 2 says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. Paul will go on to say that we, the church, these us believing Jews and Gentiles have received this circumcision by faith. But what is implied here is that these evildoers, these flesh mutilators, so to speak, are not the circumcision of God. In fact, this term flesh mutilators is a, is a play on words for circumcision. And he says they're, they're not the circumcision is the implication here that their circumcision that that they want to push adds up to nothing more than mutilation of the flesh because they're doing it for all the wrong reasons. The content of Romans 2 seems to be on Paul's mind here because he moves from this inward circumcision to this second affirmation. We are those who worship by the Spirit. John Calvin clarifies here by saying that Paul is making a contrast to those who worship by the letter of the law, strictly by outward observances. And we see this as a constant problem in the New Testament, don't we? And finally, we are those who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. what What does Paul mean by this, confidence in the flesh? Well, notice that that Paul will explain what having confidence in the flesh looks like by telling his own story, by giving his own biography, by 
by, by laying out his resume of sorts. He says, I have every confidence or, or I have every right to be confident in the flesh. He says, I have the purest of Hebrew pedigrees by birth. And my piety was exemplary, blameless, according to the law. You'll notice here that, that these evildoers, these mutilators of the flesh, these, these dogs, strong language, are people striving for religious purity and seeking to do good deeds. They're seeking to be right according to God's law. These are the people that Paul's so upset about. Why is this? I mean, as we thought about last week, the, 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 the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector and trying to divorce ourselves from how we often look at Pharisees, but seeing this as a good man, the kind of guy that you'd want to be an officer in your church by outward appearance. This is these kind of people. People who are admirable in their conduct. And it's Paul who says that these are the folks that we should be on guard about. It is remarkable that Paul has such a tough stomach for so many things. He sees a big God who is abundant in forgiveness, even to the worst in society. I mean, we, we read the Corinthians and, and that's a church with some problems. But to Paul, beloved in Christ. And yet, whether it be in Romans or Galatians or here in Philippians, Paul has little patience for those who try to seek righteousness on their own, apart from faith in Jesus Christ. How, how are we to understand this? Well, Paul goes on by doing a little bit of accounting. So our second point this morning is a backwards balance sheet. You'll notice that Paul begins his resume by saying, whatever these guys have to be confident in, I have it all the more. Paul begins his resume, all things that qualify him as righteous according to the law. And you can, you can separate these qualifications into two categories. The first is speaking of his Jewish pedigree. Circumcised on the eighth day, he says, unlike many postulates who have come into the Jewish faith, who have been circumcised later in life, Paul says, I'm, I'm a Jew by birth, and I was circumcised on the eighth day according to the strict rigor of the law. There's nothing about my circumcision that one could complain about. And this is gain according to the law. He's a true Israelite, given the privilege of belonging to God's people by birth. And even as being born an Israelite, he is a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a, a tribe that is, that is favored. A territory who housed the holy city itself. He is a Hebrew of Hebrews. And this is gain, according to the law. But it's not only that Paul was born 
in good religious stock. His contact, his, his conduct is without rival as well. As to the law of Pharisee, one set apart for the careful study of the Torah. These Pharisees were considered to have somewhat of a divine authority as to the interpretation and application of the law. Paul is somewhat of a Jedi master when it comes to the law of God. He gets it, he understands it, and he puts it into practice. And this, according to the law, is gain. He is so zealous for the law that he is a persecutor of the church. This one might seem a little odd to us, but it's to say that Paul was not only a teacher of the law, but he would effort to rid the Jewish nation and the Jewish religion of, of, of any heretical views that came into the community. And, and Christianity early on was seen as one of these heretical views, a, a sect. And so a good Jew, a truly zealous Jew, would do anything that they could to put an end to this false way of thinking. For it's not keeping with true religion. Paul sums up this whole section by, by saying that his conduct, his righteousness under the law, is faultless, blameless. And then Paul invites us to take a look at his balance sheet, if you will. We all have one of these balance sheets in our mind. We, we have a column that kind of sums up our Christian life, a loss on one side, liability, gain, profit on the other. And in the loss side, we're, we're pretty clear of what goes into that category, right? It's the sins we're ashamed of. It's the stuff we don't want people to know about. And, and, and when people do find out about it, we, we do feel bad about it. It's the stuff that's clearly sinful. And we place that into our loss category. But what's interesting here in this other category, we, we often do have profitable things. The things we're actually doing pretty good with. The way that we are being obedient. Yeah, sure, we have weaknesses. But I'm a decent spouse. Integrity in my business practices. My, my children are relatively well-behaved. These are some things that we can, we can be proud of. Of course, Paul's prophet statement is far better than any of ours because he says, according to the law, he is what? Blameless. Paul has a pretty spectacular statement in front of him. But you'll notice that as he looks at his own balance sheet and these two columns, this loss and this profit, or, or as he says, gain, he takes a Sharpie out and he crosses out gain and he says loss. He says, all the things that I could put in the profit category is actually loss. It's, 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 it's rubbish, he says. The only thing that can go into the gain category for Paul is Christ Jesus himself. And if there is anything else in that category, there, there seems to be no room 
for Jesus, according to Paul. He says, I count everything as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. It seems to be necessary to count these things as rubbish if one is to gain Christ. For according to Paul, gaining Christ is actually the only way to pursue righteousness. It's the only way to be righteous before God, or as he says, to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. What makes the dogs, the flesh mutilators, the evildoers so repugnant to Paul and opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ is the very things that make them look like good folks. It is their strength that Paul is so concerned about. Their works according to the law, their preferred pedigree, all their additions turn out to be their greatest enemies. And it's not because their strength or their law-keeping or their piety is in and of itself bad. It's because they considered it as good. They considered it as gain. They considered it as profitable before God. And I think this is what Luther is so provocatively getting at, isn't it? That personal righteousness, according to the law, gains us nothing before God. Because as it turns out, it is no righteousness at all. For the Christian, Paul tells us, there is no room for anything else in this gain category. Save Christ and his perfect righteousness that does not come to us by works of the law, but, but by faith and faith alone. A righteousness that is completely unearned, that is pure gift. And this, this is where a Christian's confidence is to lie. Not in anything that we can add to the equation, but everything that Christ has done, this Luther will go on as his theology develops to call an alien righteousness, a righteousness that comes to us completely from the outside. Well, if that's true, where does it leave us this morning? In conclusion, I want to consider together a blessed bankruptcy. Paul's reasoning for counting all of his supposed merit as loss is for the purpose of knowing Christ. And Paul says the power of his resurrection. He says, I share in Christ's suffering so that I might die with him. For these are the means in which I might attain to the resurrection. I think a lot of times when we read this passage, and it's a fairly familiar one, as we read it like this, knowing Christ is so much better compared to anything else. And that is absolutely true. But I think we can stop there, kind of taking this as a, as a maxim for happiness, a maxim for life. And, and, and understanding this does bring about true joy, as we see in Paul's letter. But I think it goes beyond that. 
It's actually a requirement for taking hold of Jesus. Seeing everything that we have to offer as loss is really the only thing that allows us to truly die, which as we've learned in this series is the requirement for resurrection. When we realize that we are completely bankrupt according to God's standards, it is then and only then that God nails this whole ledger to the cross where our profit and loss sheet of righteousness before God is, is drenched in the righteous blood of Jesus Christ, the only one who has ever lived righteously. And by faith and faith alone, you and all your sin, those horrible secret sins that we put into the lost category, and all the filthy rags that we parade around as some sort of righteousness, are buried with Christ and we die. And that death really is our only hope. It's the only hope that we have for life. And the better we are at being righteous on our own, the more difficult this is for us to hear. We see this throughout Christ's ministry, don't we? As he comes to righteous people, they, they have a tough time with Jesus, but the sinners, they're pretty quick. <laughs> To say, have mercy on me, a sinner. The more righteous a person on their own, the more difficult it is for them to accept that they can't add anything to their salvation. Not even their supposed good deeds. This is why the tax collector in last week's parable had so much benefit. Because he was already so close to death. He had nothing to add to the equation. And that was clear to him and everyone else. And that was, the, that was the thing that he needed for life, to go home justified. So where is our confidence today? Is our confidence in Christ and then, and then a little bit of our own ability I think one of the, the ways to assess this in our own lives is to, to see how we look at other people and what requirements we put on them to look like a good Christian, to believe in Christ and to dress the right way, to believe in Christ and then vote the right way, to believe in Christ and, and watch the right movies, to believe in Christ and, and have the right kind of friends. But we have to remember that if this equation is going to work at all, only Christ can be in that profit category. And Paul calls us here to see ourselves rightly. That everything about us alone is liability, death, and loss. And if you see yourself like that today, you have a great advantage. You have a great advantage for in that death, you can say with great confidence along with Paul that it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. Dear Christian, Christ did not come to supplement your good works. He came to raise you from the dead. And that is good news for us. 
for he comes and grants righteousness to us as pure gift, a righteousness of infinite worth because it is Christ's righteousness. As C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity, nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look to yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look to Christ and you will find him in everything else. May he grant us by his spirit that we would further embrace our death, that we might further embrace our life, which is in Christ alone. Let's pray together.